the fifth column. It's a military phrase, and it comes from the Spanish Civil War. One day, a General Mola was marching his army upon a particular city. And with the walls in view, someone asked him this question. How many columns of men do you have? The answer should have been four. But instead, he strangely replied, five columns. Now, it wasn't that he had bad maths. He gave this explanation for his reasoning. He said, that's four columns at my back and a fifth column inside the walls. You see, there were partisans who were ready to fight for his cause as soon as war would break. There were saboteurs who would demolish defences from the inside. Which, of course, is much more difficult to deal with, isn't it? Now, in the New Testament, we discover that the church of Jesus Christ faces a similar threat. And while there are many external dangers to the church, many things coming at the walls of the church... Nevertheless, the greatest enemy is probably the fifth column, the enemy within the church's ranks. And such a danger is this that in the New Testament, the letter of Second Peter was specifically written as a wake-up call to the church to wake us up out of our complacency about this danger. So please turn with me, if you would, to Second Peter tonight. And consider what the Apostle has to say about the fifth column. How can we identify it? How can we combat it? And how serious is this threat anyway? 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm sure it would help to have a Bible in front of you. Verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Two simple headings to help us grapple with these three verses. First, we'll consider the fact of false teachers. And second, flowing from that, 
we'll look at the features of false teachers. And I'm sure you will see that the fact and the features are connected together. One flows to the other. I was in London this week for a couple of days, and one of the challenges I had to negotiate was the London Underground. And one thing I soon discovered was that often you couldn't travel directly to the destination you wanted to get to. Sometimes you had to get on one track, one line, get off at a particular stop, and then make the connection onto another line that would take you where you wanted to go. And it seems to me that this is precisely how Peter builds his argument in these three verses. Peter says, you must first be on the train of thought, on a line of thinking, that says false teachers exist. And once you are on that track, then and only then, Will you make the connection when you actually see a false teacher? So firstly then, let's consider this opening aspect, the fact of false teachers. And that's found in just the opening part of verse 1, where Peter says, But there were also false prophets among the people. Clearly, Peter is drawing a contrast with something that's come before So what has Peter been speaking about in chapter 1? Well, basically, Peter has been defending his ministry against detractors. He has been arguing with evidences that his teaching ministry and the teaching ministry of the apostles is authentic. He is not a fraud. They are not frauds. In fact, he says, we are in the line of the prophets of the Old Testament, who also spoke true words from God. And so do these people who say that Peter and his ilk are not the real deal, that it's just made-up stories, that it's just human fabrication. Peter responds, this is untrue. No, he says, verse 16, chapter 1, we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty, and we not only saw God in Jesus... But we even heard God's voice as we were with Jesus on the mountain. Indeed, says Peter, along with the true prophets of the Old Testament, we truly speak from God. And after all, these men in Old Testament time, they didn't just invent some religious ideas. Because prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, verse 21. But men spoke from God as they were carried along By the Holy Spirit. Now as Peter comes to the threshold of chapter 2. Having defended his own credentials. You notice now that Peter begins to turn the tables. On these false teachers. He says yes there is such a thing as false teaching and false teachers. Let me tell you all about it. Let me make you aware of how these people operate. And how to identify them. And what Peter does, you notice, is really use an argument from history. You might call it an Ecclesiastes argument. Remember that book in the Old Testament. Full of practical wisdom. So full of realism. And that constant refrain throughout the book. 
There is nothing new under the sun. Well, says Peter, there is nothing new as far as false teaching is concerned. It is a very old, it is a very ancient practice indeed. When these true men of God were speaking God's word in Old Testament times, there were also false prophets among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you. Human beings, of course, over centuries make very superficial, little changes. But in the fundamentals, little changes over time. Sin certainly doesn't change. Error never goes out of fashion. Even in our days, as Peter, in the New Testament time, this is the case. A little aside, which is worth mentioning, in light of the recent Da Vinci Code controversy, where it's presented as scandalous, shocking, this new claim that there are other Gospels as well as the Gospels we find in our Bible. It's presented as really radical, as if no one had come up with this thought. And yet here is Peter, a writer of one of the New Testament letters, and he's saying, yes, that's how it's going to be. Don't be surprised when you find 20 or so other Gospels full of error. That'll happen, says Peter. It's happening in our time. And then he adds this frightening little addition. Did you notice it? They will be among you. The false prophets were among the people of old. And these false teachers will be among or within you. Now, is Peter really saying what he seems to be saying? Yes, he is. He's suggesting that within the visible church of Jesus Christ as a whole, such counterfeit operators will be present. He says they will be within your churches. They will preach in your pulpits. They will write within the covers of acceptable Christian books. They will gain an audience on Christian TV channels. Within the fold of the visible church, there will be a fifth column. An enemy within. It's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? Quite a frightening thought. And perhaps tonight, if it makes you shudder or a little apprehensive, then good. That's wonderful. Because Peter's intent is to give his readers a wake-up call. It's wartime, says Peter. And there are enemies behind enemy lines. Wake up! Just imagine uh, this picture during the Second World War. Just imagine that you were a a general in the army. You were a high-ranking intelligence officer. Just imagine that you disbelieved in spies. So people would say to you, I think there's a, a mole. I think there's a spy within our network. Misguiding us, misleading us, feeding information to the enemy and bringing it back and feeding it in. But you'd say, I don't believe in spies. The world's too much of a nice place, even in wartime, for people to be like that. That would be Naive, would it not? 
and fatal. No, says Peter, false teachers, counterfeit operators are a deadly reality. Perhaps he remembers what Jesus himself said, the great general, what he said about spiritual warfare in the last days. Matthew 24, 4. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name and deceive many. In verse 24, false Christs and false prophets will appear to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So Peter says, Beware. Wake up to the reality of false teachers. And, not only wake up to the reality, but be equipped to spot the counterfeit operator when you see them and when you hear them. So, secondly then, the features of false teachers. The features. I go with my young son to the the zoo. And in his life, he has never seen a zebra. He's never seen one. Doesn't know they exist. So I give him a little pep talk. Glenn, I say, there's an animal called a zebra. Now, you're just going to have to take my word for it. And so you'll know it when you see it today. Let me describe it to you. Okay, it kind of looks a little bit like a horse. And it's got black and white stripes. All the way down it. And as we're walking along, even before I see it myself, look daddy, that's a zebra. Now you spot false teachers in exactly the same way. First, Peter tells you they exist. And then Peter says, here are the features, the marks that will help you identify them. So you'll say there's one. Uh, There's another over there. You'll know them by their stripes. And you'll find here in these uh, remaining verses, 1b to 3, there are at least four identifying marks of false teachers. Firstly, notice that they subtly introduce heresy. False teachers, as the name suggests, are instructors in inaccuracy. But they do not parade this fact. They do not parade that what they teach is suspect. Notice the little word Peter adds in verse 1. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. The word is subtle. They stealthily input error. And so false teachers don't stand up in your churches and say, listen, Some teach geography, some teach English, but hey, I teach heresy. They won't say that. They'll be much more subtle than that. They'll say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Bible-believing Christian, in a manner of speaking. And all the while, they will slip false doctrine into the mix. When I was young, my mum knew that I didn't like vegetables. I still don't, especially if I'm ever coming for dinner. So she devised a very cunning plan. She would concoct some tasty soup, and she knew that I liked soup. But into the soup, she would drop some chopped up vegetables to get them into my system some way, 
And because the rest of it just tasted so good, I hardly even tasted the bad stuff. Clever, eh? Now, in a much more negative fashion, this is what false teachers do. They sugarcoat things while they insert their poison. They win you over with a friendly style. You'll probably really like them. They'll be really likable. W.E. Crispwell says, The counterfeit teacher is often a suave, affable, personable, scholarly man who claims to be a friend of Christ. And yet Peter says, if you pause long enough, if you look close enough, if you listen hard enough, you'll see that the substance is shaky. That in fact, false doctrine, one or another, has been inserted. Listen to this list. False teachers introduce any of the following heresies. They may deny either the full deity or humanity of Jesus. They may reject the full inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. False teachers may resist the notion that Jesus died in our place. And they may particularly disdain the thought that God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus. False teachers may affirm the love of God, yet cast a slur on the justice and the holiness of God. And as a result, many of them may therefore deny hell, because a loving God would never send anyone there. Such teachers often deny the resurrection of Jesus, or the full resurrection of believers after death. And they may refute the notion that peace with God comes through faith alone and not by any works or achievement that we do. Now, it's hard to tell in 2 Peter what the precise false doctrine, what the heresy was. Our best guess, based on the third chapter, is that perhaps these teachers were denying the second coming of Jesus. They were saying, he's really not coming back. But whatever the case, they were abandoning a core doctrine, not something on the fringes over which Christians may disagree, something core. And they were introducing this little by little, bit by bit, very subtly. Secondly, the second feature of false teachers is that they stubbornly deny Christ. In the end, says Peter, these people show by their beliefs and their behavior that they reject God and his son. Let's read verse 1 again. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Notice this. By denying true doctrines about God and Christ, they are denying Christ and God. See, in Peter's mind, We cannot divorce knowledge about God from God. We can't say, as some people do, I just want to know God. Don't bother me with theology. Or I just want to know Jesus. Don't hassle me with deep truths about him. I don't want to get in arguments over the divinity of Jesus or something unimportant like that, they say. But if that's your view, then Peter says to you, you're kidding yourselves. When you deny truths about God and Christ, you deny God and Christ themselves. 
Suppose after this service tonight, you were having a chat with someone downstairs in the lounge. And that someone began to say something about a friend of yours. They began talking about this individual and they started to say some things about them that just wasn't true. Now, would you be a friend to your friend if you just remained silent? And if you were a friend, would you not speak up? Wouldn't you say, that's not right? I'm sorry, but that isn't true. He's not like that. She's not like that. And if we are friends of God and Jesus, and we find ourselves listening to nonsense about him, if we are friends, we will surely interrupt, will we not? That's not right. That's not true. He's not like that. Denying truths about God is to deny God. And so is a little aside. If you are not a Christian, you can't take comfort in the thinking, well, I don't believe all the truths about Jesus. I don't really believe that he's God. Not sure if he really died in my place, but Jesus is a nice guy. He'll understand anyway. No, he won't. Because if you reject the truths about him, you reject him. And I need to tell you on the basis of these verses that the outcome is terrible for those who deny Christ. Swift destruction awaits them. The judgment theme comes in for the first time and it's not the last time in this chapter. Doctrine isn't trivial. I was, uh, when I was in London with uh, David Armstrong, a member of our church, I was very impressed by a book that he was reading. I don't know if he just had it to try and impress me, but uh, it was about a 4th century Christian pastor called Athanasius. And if you know nothing about his story, then I do suggest you go and look into it. Athanasius was a Christian pastor who was exiled five times for what he believed. He defended truths about Jesus and particularly the deity, the Godhood of Jesus. And you know that one time he was embroiled in a controversy where he and his enemies were fighting over one iota, quite literally. See, there was a Greek word used of Jesus, where if you added the letter I, it said that Jesus was just like God. He just resembled God, but he wasn't the real thing. And if you remove the I, you were saying he was God. He was one with God. And yet people today might say, what a waste of energy. Who would go to prison over one iota? Athanasius would. Because he understood something we often don't. That when we are defending doctrine about Jesus, we are loving Jesus. And like Athanasius, he was saving generations from eternal ruin to that heresy. So false teachers are deniers of God. They are professors of faith, but they are not possessors of it. They live among God's people. They may appear to be part of God's people, but they will never enter the promised land. They will fall eventually in the wilderness. 
under the judgment of God. They subtly introduce heresy. They stubbornly deny Christ. And the downward spiral continues. They shamefully model sensuality. Notice the flow of this. Their inaccurate beliefs now lead to immoral behavior. Shameful. Shameful behavior. Many will follow their shameful ways. Verse 2. The idea is that their behavior completely lacks moral restraint. They are excessive in immorality. Particularly sexually. Blatant, says Peter. I just couldn't believe walking through the middle of London this week. Sex shops all over the place. Right, one right next to the toy store, Hamleys, that we were going to. Blatant. And these teachers are just blatant. Their deviations may be hidden away for a while, but eventually things surface. And they soon become brazen and unabashed. If you think of some of the more notorious cases of false teachers across the pond, you'll sadly note that in many situations, once things were discovered, there were many women. It just became excessive and blatant. Immorality in overdrive. Because once again, bad doctrine leads to bad behavior. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, for instance, a congregation crippled with deviant behavior, it's no accident that Paul spent much of his time speaking about truth. He deals with errant beliefs which result in errant behavior. So watch out for the person whose lifestyle is not what it should be. Don't open your ears when your eyes tell you that someone's behavior is suspect. That's what we're being taught here. See, no minister should be like the man that Charles Spurgeon once spoke about. He was so good in the pulpit that when he was there, no one wanted him to leave. And he lived so badly when he left the pulpit that no one wanted him to get back in again. We must take seriously the criteria, therefore, which is given in the New Testament for those who teach. Given by the Apostle Paul, in other letters, for the teaching elder. Have you ever noticed in 1 Timothy and in Titus that the qualification for teaching is always couched within a number of character qualifications? You've got all these character qualifications and just a little insert about teaching. So the teaching elder, says Paul and Timothy, must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach? Yes, but not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. If he cannot live for God, then he cannot speak for God. And yet, sadly, so often this happens. And though you would think it would empty churches, the opposite is so often true. Because verse 2 says, that many, not just some, will follow their shameful ways. Again, look at some of the more obvious examples of false teachers on Christian TV channels. If you're unfortunate enough to have those things, some of them anyway. These teachers, they don't have small churches. They fill stadiums to overflowing. 
They sell books by the truckload. And later on in this book, Peter gives the reason for such a following. He said it's called having your ears tickled. That carnal part of us that wants to be told what we want to hear. Your sins are okay. God won't mind. He never gets angry. You might swindle your way through business life a bit. You might have that affair, make a mistake. God won't bother too much. People love to crowd in and hear things like that. And so the Christian teacher confirms their agenda. They hear what they want to hear and then they live as they please. So they shamefully model sensuality. They stubbornly deny Christ. They subtly introduce heresy. And finally, notice, they selfishly exploit the church. False teachers often gain people's confidence and then exploit people's pockets. In their greed, verse 3, these teachers will exploit you with stories they've made up. Now this is really quite a bad deal if you think about it. The false teacher is probably sending you to hell with his deviant doctrine about Christ, with his other gospel that he preaches. And yet, just to add insult to injury, you are paying him for the favor. The word is exploit, which means to make merchandise of something or someone. To see in an individual or a group a financial opportunity. False teachers are not so much interested in saving souls as in saving and in spending. It's the Simon the Sorcerer Syndrome. In Acts chapter 8, remember the man who practiced magic arts and was apparently converted. And when he sees Peter laying hands on people in the power of the Holy Spirit, when he sees this, he covets it and he wants to use it for his own gain. Give me this ability, he pleads. And he offers Peter some money. And Peter says, may your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. He said, money's your God and your goal. And the mark of a true teacher, as opposed to a counterfeit, is that the true teacher isn't in it for the money. Of course, the teacher needs money to live, like everyone else. But he doesn't live for money. He needs money to live, but he doesn't live for it. And while it is true, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the worker is worth his pay. The true pastor never says, I'm worth it. He preaches about money and giving. That is his biblical duty. But he does not appeal for money for himself to line his own pockets. He's there and he would do it for free to make others spiritually rich in Christ. He doesn't live to be rich. Like a lady I heard again on a TV channel. She said that whenever she speaks anywhere, she must wear a new suit, a brand new outfit every time. God was blessing her so much. Why should she live cheap? Now you know what you should do, don't you? You ever hear that? Turn your TV off like I did. Or if it ever happens, God forbid, in your church. 
in your own pulpit with your own pastor. Find a new pastor. Or if you can't do that, find another church. Just amazes me how often people don't apply this simple principle. This test. Do they have ten cars and a mansion, two private jets, three holiday homes? They've probably not got heaven as their treasure. They're building a kingdom. It's just that it's their own kingdom. Someone was telling me they were invited to hear some wonderful preacher who was visiting Scotland a couple of years back. They had a wonderful worldwide ministry. And they really had no idea what they were in for with this person. But it soon became clear. They said that the preacher spent the first ten minutes talking about his books. Apparently these books were essential for every Christian and for every person there. And then he said to put plenty of money in the offering. The money that was going to his ministry. Well, they said, I got up and left. And did they really need to wait to hear if the teaching was false? It probably was. Peter says, beware the one who seeks to use you for monetary gain. And if you have the privilege of receiving remuneration from other Christians, if you write books, it's a great privilege. Don't exploit your constituents. It will lead you to ruin. And you see that the judgment theme comes back in at the end of verse 3. Their condemnation has been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. Well, it's weighty stuff, isn't it? It's designed to be weighty stuff. I mean, in this chapter of 2 Peter 2, there are no commands, there are no instructions, there is just pure terrifying outcome to false teachers and those who follow them. Peter doesn't want us to sit comfortably with this. He wants us to be on the edge of our seats. And so first of all, he has established the fact of false teachers. And once we have got on that train of thought, we're then able to make the connection and God willing, we're able to more readily identify the counterfeit teacher. We know them by the heresy they introduce, the Lord they deny, the sensuality they model, and the people they exploit. I'm always amazed, you know, that the Apostle Paul, one of Peter's contemporaries, uh, who was an authentic minister, I'm always amazed that he had to be checked that what he was teaching was true by the Bereans. Remember those Christians? They would listen to Paul's teaching and preaching and they wouldn't look at him too much because they were busy in their Bibles checking if what Paul said was actually true. Paul the Apostle. And if Paul the Apostle had to be scrutinized, then anyone in this pulpit and any Christian author and any TV preacher or whatever else the sources are should be scrutinized as well. You'd be a foolish general to think that there's no such thing as a spy, that there's no such thing as an enemy within. God grant us protection from such enemies. Let's pray.